So again, these are Jews who had become Christians, and they are filtering their Christianity through their Jewish heritage. And it is very difficult for them to see that all of the aspects of their Judaism have been fulfilled now that they're Christians. And in the new order of things, new covenant, things are different. And so they say to Peter, and you, you can almost, I think, imagine the tone of their voice. You went to uncircumcised men? And you ate with them? And the sense of that is, for 1,500 years, we didn't do this. For 1,500 years, there were Jews, the chosen people of God, in an unconditional covenant relationship with God, marked by circumcision, which was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and by all of these practices and rituals with, by which we walked with God, and you're abandoning all those? I mean, it's, it, and you can understand, you've got to, they, they, these are not people who came to Christ 50 years ago. These are people who came to Christ weeks ago. Because remember, we're not that far from the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So this is setting up what is a major issue in the early years of the church. And what it's really, well, let me put it another way, what it has the potential of doing is you're going to have a Jewish church and you're going to have a Gentile church. And that is not the gospel. That is not what Christ wanted. And you, you see that Paul is the one who particularly confronts this. In uh, the letter to the Galatians is where it's most prominent, but in a lot of his writings, that Jew and Gentile are now equal, sharing in all new covenant blessings. That is very hard for them. The Gentiles are thrilled with it because they've come to Christ. They're out of that Greco-Roman you know, crazy worldview and all the stuff that goes with that. And they're just delighted to be free in Christ. That's not how the Jews are seeing this. It's very difficult for them. And so for them, the issue is fellowship and food and whom you associate with. And so it's, it's the kind of situation that you, I mean, I hope you can really understand it. This isn't difficult to understand why there's this tension. So what Peter does in responding to that, I'm not going to read all of it, from verse 5 through verse 15, he just reviews what happened. And we studied that. He's giving a summary, in effect, of what happened in chapter 10. He's giving a summary of the whole chapter, that whole series of events. So he then comes to the end of his summary, if you will. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now, remember, this would be Cornelius and the other Gentiles that were with him in Caesarea. Now look at, look at the language here. Just as on us at the beginning. Now when he uses the word beginning, what does he mean? Pentecost. That's when the church started. That's when the Holy Spirit came. That's when the, uh, uh, the, the manifestations of the Spirit were evident. And so, but the key there is the first person, plural, pronoun, us. Just as on us. They experienced the exact same thing we experienced. 
So what is the conclusion? <clears throat> Spiritual equality. And then Peter goes on, verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water. Now, I, I'll just quickly, you know what that means. That's John the Baptist and his baptism along the Jordan River, which was, and you remember what that was? That was to prepare people. This is the baptism of repentance. It's to prepare people for the new order, which means the Messiah is coming and all of that that you already know. Then continuing, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that, this, is really, this is absolutely fantastic, what Peter is doing here. He remembers the difference between the old order and the new order. And the key is the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is just saying, and then I remembered what Jesus told us. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is just saying to them, this is what the Lord Jesus, your Messiah, said, and I've lived to see this. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them, Cornelius, his family, his guests, Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, Peter says, that I should stand in God's way. The language there, you could almost accurately translate it this way. Who am I to get in the way of what God is doing? What's his inference that he wants those people to draw. You're getting in the way. By your protesting that we eat and fellowship with Gentiles, you're getting in the way of the new order. Now, I mean, this, I don't want to minimize this. is so difficult for Jews. And as you know, at least I think you know, Paul records this in Galatians chapter 2. We're up in Antioch. This is this is considerable years later. Uh, not, well, not considerable. It's a number of years later. And what Paul, if you remember that, Paul is he's, the language he uses. He's just coming unglued because what's happening? There's this great Gentile church in Antioch. We're going to be reading about that in the next paragraph. Is is a, is primarily Gentile, and so Peter goes up there, and what he does is he eats over here in the corner with a bunch of Jews. While the Gentiles, which would have been the larger number, are all eating. And Paul says, and he chastises Peter in public and says, in effect, how dare you do this? And then he even says, and tragically, Barnabas joined Peter, which is really astonishing. Now, that's in one sense, that's outside of this, but the, the reason I just bring that up is you just see the continued struggle that Jews have with us. This progressive understanding of all God is doing. And I might choose to, because that's really, this, this progressive understanding, they just, they keep hearing it, and they see it, hear it, they just have to keep relearning it. That the new order has dawned. There is no covenant difference in terms of the new covenant, is what I mean. No difference between Jew and Gentile, which is the point of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Gentiles share equally 
in all new covenant blessing. And I mean, that is just, the Gentiles have no trouble accepting this. But the Jews do. I mean, it is a, and it, I mean, we, we briefly talked about that last week when uh, I think it was Lau asked a question and I wrote some things on the board. But the Jewish person today, they had a break with 1,500 years of tradition. The Jewish person today has to break with 3,500 years of tradition. I mean, it's just, it's hard to do that, no matter what God does through Christ. And so anyway, so Peter is, Peter is absolutely spot on here. Who am I to stand in God's way? Verse 18. When they heard these things, meaning the circumcision party and the, the people in Jerusalem are listening to this, they fell silent. That, that doesn't mean they're overwhelmed by Peter's oratory. It just means, okay, we get it. No more protests, no more questions. And they glorified God, saying, And the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's like Acts 2.38, the repentant, metanoia. Repentance there means changing your thinking and understanding of who Jesus is. That leads to life. What life? Eternal life. So this group uh, of folks that that, uh, Luke labels the circumcision party there in verse 3, you could say they get it. They they understand it. Isn't this a good thing, Jim, that these people would struggle with this and ask valid questions? Because, you know, like if you have a classroom situation and someone raises their hand and asks a question, there might be six, you know, ten people in the class that really don't understand it either, but they didn't ask, and so they couldn't understand. So even though it seems like they're at loggerheads, it's a good loggerhead in that it opens up an understanding to many, Mm -hmm. and then they can become advocates Mm -hmm. and explain it maybe to others. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, absolutely, no, that's absolutely... Uh, that's absolutely correct. And this is something that um, I mean, you're going to see it. This issue keeps coming up, which is why when we get to Acts chapter 15, you have what is usually called the Great Jerusalem Council. And that's where they, I mean, and James, the, the Apostle James, chairs that, and, and they settle it. They issue a decree. I mean, that's a strong word. They issue a letter that circulates to all the churches. And we there are two places in the New Testament where that, that letter is, is, is detailed for us. And because they explain, um, they explain why that Jew and Gentile are equal. They explain what that means. And this is the practice we're to follow. But, uh, you know, and they, they're going to keep working through this. <laughs> but, I mean, you're right. I mean, one of the, the good things, you know, you've raised a, a point that, it doesn't really have anything to do with this particular text, but it is so important in in a, a fellowship of Christians. Uh, it's a Bible study, a, you know, a, a class or a Sunday school class, an elective or whatever it is, uh, to encourage people to have questions. I'll tell you, to be honest with you, I get really frustrated. I preach almost every Sunday. I get really frustrated when I can't let people ask questions. <laughs> I can't, I just, sometimes we can say, I wish this were a class and I could ask you a question. Do you get this? Do you have anything you want to ask? Okay. Uh, you know, John down the third row summarized what I just said. 
you know, that would really go over well. They, people stopped coming to church in droves. If you started doing it. But it is, I mean, you know, you don't normally, and you, you can hardly, because there's a lot of things you want to try to accomplish in a worship service. But um, that's why in you know, our church, we try to encourage people, if you have questions, they have something called Ask Dr. Eckman. But you have, you have questions about the sermon, question, fire off an email. I mean, that's a good thing to do. And I mean, I, I think often some of the most important uh, uh, learning experiences in an individual's life can come through questions. Because you really, it's a question you have, and you get that answered to the, you know, that you understand it. I mean, that's a learning experience. You don't usually forget that. So anyway, yeah, and that's, that's, that's why it's good. I one time had, one time had a teacher who said, Doubt is the most important quality of a thinking Christian. And that almost sounds counterintuitive at first, but it really isn't. Doubt is not an enemy of faith. Doubt solidifies faith if you have that doubt answered. You know, you have a doubt about something, a doubt which framed a question or whatever thing. Um, that, can be, that can be a strong faith-building experience for a Christian. Oskin, as uh, many years ago, it's probably 20 years ago, wrote a book. I don't know if you know who he is, but a uh, uh, fairly well-known British author. But Oskin has wrote a book simply called Doubt, and that's what he does. I found that book a, a few years ago, and I, that's just a really good treatment of that. Doubt is not our enemy because we are not into propagandizing. We're into what the Bible says. We're into enabling people to internalize truth. And sometimes the road to internalizing truth is lots of questions that need to be answered. So that was great. That was a great question. I appreciate that. All right. Got it? Now we shift in verse 19, uh, really through uh, the rest of the chapter. We shift to Antioch. Now, I don't know if you're interested in this, but if you are following in your map... Several of the maps that I've given you, the one on page five, or I'm not sure our pages, but you can see where Antioch is. Um, it's up in the it's up in the Roman province called Syria, and uh, Antioch exists today. Unfortunately, with the horrific civil war that's been going on in the last seven years, almost all of these very significant sites have been destroyed. Palmyra, which was uh, a, a major, you can see it on this map too, a major, major trading city. When ISIS owned it, I don't know if you read about that, they blew everything up. I mean, they just blew everything up. And it's one of the most complete cities that was preserved from the Roman Empire. And ISIS blew it all up. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're studying. But verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. All right, now, that, remember, Stephen it takes you back to chapter 7. The increasing persecution that resulted from Stephen, uh, martyrdom. They traveled as far, and again, I mean, if you want to look on the map on page 5, you can see it. They traveled as far as Phoenicia. That's where the city of Tyre is and Tripoli is. Cyprus, that's an island in the eastern Mediterranean. And Antioch, that's that city. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
So who's spreading, who's being scattered? That Greek word there is diaspora. Who's being scattered? Jews who have become Christians. And they're scattering because of the persecution that had followed Stephen's martyrdom. And as you know, before Acts 9, which we've already covered, who was leading the persecution? Paul. Well, Saul. Paul, Paul. that's right. So, I mean, now he has come to Christ, as you know. Okay, now, you have to follow this very, very carefully or you can get lost. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, that's the island in the eastern Mediterranean, and Cyrene, that's an area in the northern coast of Africa, would be about where Libya is today, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, now that's a new group. <laughs> so these are Jews of the diaspora. These are Jews that have come to Antioch. These are Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they're beginning to talk about Jesus Christ to a group of Hellenists. Now that word Hellenist means Greek-speaking Gentiles. Okay? It can sometimes mean Greek-speaking Jews, but here it means Greek-speaking Gentiles. Because for the most part, the vast majority of people who live in Antioch are Gentiles. Now, have I lost you? I'm, I'm trying, there are a whole bunch of groups being mentioned here. But the, 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 the major point to remember is Jews who had come to know Christ, come to Antioch, they're from Cyprus, they're from Cyrene, northern Africa, and they begin preaching about the Lord Jesus to a group of Greek-speaking Gentiles. Verse 21, what's the result? The hand of the Lord was upon them. Who? These Jews of the diaspora who were speaking to these Hellenists. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So you have Jews of the diaspora preaching to Greek-speaking Gentiles, and the Greek-speaking Gentiles come to Christ. Got it? That's what's going on there. So, I mean, that's just, that's kind of an amazing thing to envision. <laughs> Be, uh, it's like, it's like a, a precursor of what the 144,000 are going to be doing during the tribulation period. Highly energized, highly focused Jewish people who have a passion and out there changing the world. And, this, this, this group of the diaspora incorporated what, what Peter that's right. had said. That's right. Yeah. And it, it's powerful to see what's happening. <laughs> Verse 22, so what's the result of this? The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. First time it's called that. When the church is mentioned, but this is referring to, this is the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now you know who Barnabas is, we were introduced to him you know, a number of chapters ago. So this, is a, this, this happens all the time. They're hearing this. It's, they can hardly believe it. A group of diaspora Jews are leading Gentile-speaking, or Greek-speaking Gentiles to Christ? Are you sure? Yeah, Barnabas, head up there. Check it out for us. The, 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 is that the, the apostles still in Jerusalem? That's right. That's right. When he came, that'd be 
he used Barnabas, when he came, meaning to Antioch, what did he see? He saw the grace of God. What does Luke mean by that? He saw the grace of God. Well, I mean, what does he mean by that? That's, you know, kind of a concept. What does he mean? Saw the evidence of God's activity. He saw the evidence of God's activity. He saw the evidence of God's grace. He saw the amazing grace of God working in a Gentile city. And Jews are the vehicle of the blessing. So, I mean, I, I just love how Luke summarizes. He doesn't explain long meetings and interviews. It's just summary. He saw the grace of God. He saw the evidence of what God was doing. Oh, my goodness. And it says it's almost like, you know, and he was glad. You know, a duh, but, you know, and he was glad, you know. <laughs> and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with stead. Fast purpose. So, I mean, it's just, it, it, that's what he should do. He's a leader of the church, and he's exhorting them, hang in there, persevere. Why do you think he's saying that? This is probably going to be tough for you in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Hang in there. And then Luke adds a description of him. That's Barnabas. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. We had read earlier about Barnabas way back in, in, in chapter 7 and 8 and 9. He had a role in Paul's life and so on. So this, this the conclusion, a great many people were added to the Lord. You just see that I, I, in, my, in my Bible. I, I took verse 21, the hand of the Lord, end of verse 21, turn to the Lord, and the verse uh, 24, added to the Lord, I circled all of those. Simply because this is that little train of thought you can start to connect. God is at work. And every event and every demonstrable manifestation of the Spirit's work, Luke captures it and gives glory to the Lord. The Lord is doing this. These people and all this as just vehicles or instruments that God is using. Jim, question. Uh -huh. um, that same Holy Spirit that indwelt these early leaders of the church, is that the same Holy Spirit that resides in us today? No, it's totally different. Is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Same spirit. Same spirit. Same spirit. So, so can, you, can you, I mean, what does that tell us in this lost world? that are going into McDonald's today without Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, that it is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who gives us the power, the strength, the desire, the energy, um, the right words, all of that. The Bible just is filled with all of those different ways in which the Spirit works. It's the same Holy Spirit that can do the same work. As they were the instruments God was using, we are the instruments in 2018 that God is using. So, so can we, I mean, we read about these people, and maybe we don't think that this allows us to do a same, the same thing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But you're saying it, it does so that when we go out and when we're sensitive to someone who may need Jesus Christ, 
that we might be sensitive to that and yes lead them to we don't we don't make Christians we lead them to the perfect word of God and Christ so that they can understand just like this is being explained mm-hmm. and then have a discussion it's not like get on your knees and I'm going to you know save you it's like if they have questions, we can dialogue with them. Mm-hmm. And maybe over a period of time, they would come to know Christ because of the same power that guides Absolutely. these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly, exactly the same uh, application in our lives. The context is different. It's Jew, Gentile. It's, you know, it's a very... Uh, a, a very difficult, challenging time in these early years because you have Jew and Gentile that never ever fellowship together, now fellowshipping together. But that's that's the miracle of of Pentecost, the miracle of the new age, the new order, the new covenant. And and yet you and I are still the same, the ambassadors of the same Spirit with the same gospel message, trusting Him to bring about the same results. It's exactly the same. This whole chapter. Just a powerful statement about how yep. salvation comes by grace through faith Absolutely. and not works. You don't see anything about what these people had to do exactly. Exactly. to solidify their salvation. That's right. And Luke captures it just that he saw the grace of God. That's, yeah. he, you know, he doesn't give a lot of explanation what he saw, the details. He just said, Luke saw the absolute, demonstrable, compelling evidence God's grace is at work. And I mean, it, it's just exciting. This is an exciting time in the church. Then Luke tells us something that is extremely important in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, you know, we've seen that before, but if you, like, for example, you look on that map on page. Here's Antioch, and Tarsus is literally due west of Antioch. So, um, and more than likely, he would have gone by land rather than sea. But the, the point is this. Luke doesn't tell us why he goes to Tarsus to get Saul. He doesn't tell us, except what he did, that is, Saul did when he came to Antioch. This is frustrating for me, personally, because, number one, we do not know all that Paul was doing up in Tarsus for close to 13 years, <laughs> almost 14. Two, we don't know if Saul and, and Barnabas had maintained contact with one another. And the inference that seems reasonable, the inference is that they were. And Barnabas is thinking something like this. We need a strong leader to disciple the Antioch church because it's growing and it's someone that is going to be able to take as a well-trained Pharisee and Jew but also a well-trained Greco-Roman person because he went to the University of Tarsus before he sat under Gamaliel I, the rabbi. And so I, I don't know, you know, we just don't know, but I'm just sort of reading between the lines. 
Barnabas is thinking, who's the best person to really take the Antioch church where it needs to go? I got it. Saul. I'm going to go get him. So it says he found him and brought him to Antioch. Now look at that last sentence. For a whole year, this is A.D. 45, for a whole year, they, the they is a plural pronoun, at least it means Barnabas and Saul, met with the church, what church? The church in Antioch, and taught a great many people. That's what Paul's good at. He knows the word. That's what he's been studying. He knows Jesus Christ. That's what he's been studying. He's the best teacher. And when you read his 13 epistles, you can see why he chose Paul. For a year, teach, 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 teach. And it is in Antioch that disciples were first called Christians. Little Christ. That's literally what that means. Incidentally, the label Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Here, in chapter 26, verse 28 of this book, and in 1 Peter 4.16. That's a bit striking. It's only used three times. Today, it's the primary label we use. I'm sorry, just to make sure I understood the word Christian That's is right. only used three times. Mm-hmm. In the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. All those again? Uh, this here, 26, 28 of Acts, and then 1 Peter 4, 16. Now, I'm not sure what that means. It, you know, I'm not sure how much we should read into that. Because there were a lot of other labels for the followers of Christ. We're going to read about one coming up here. People of the way. Whether that's what they called themselves or that's what other people called them, we don't know for sure. But then there were a lot of other labels that were not very kind that were used to address uh, Christians. The charges hurled against Christians as the church grew defined them. But that term, because obviously you see Christ and then I-A-N-S in English, but it's just saying these are the little Christs. These are the, these are the ones that are bearing the name of Christ. And so it's just kind of, it's extraordinary. And, and remember, as we've said here a couple of times, um, these are Gentiles. I mean, there are, there are some Jews, and certainly Paul and, and, and Barnabas are Jews, but for the, this is largely a Gentile church. So it's in, it's, in, it's in this Gentile hub, and Antioch becomes a hub. Antioch's the great missionary sending church in the 40s. They're the ones that are going to send out Paul and Barnabas. So anyway, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, Luke is just giving us little fragments of information. He doesn't give a long, detailed uh, account of all that's happening in Antioch. He just says, Paul's there, teach him for a year. Here's where they're called Christian. Now, okay, are there any questions or comments? Yes. Why does he continue to refer to him as Saul after all these years? Um, well, remember, Saul is uh, his, um, his Jewish name, Paul. Uh, his, his name is Saulus Paulus. That's his name. 
uh, Saul because he's a tribe of Benjamin. He was named that. And he still identified Jim as a Jew. And that's his primary identity. When he starts his missionary journeys, whether he chooses that or others choose it, or whether Luke, the writer, just says, now I'm going to start using his Latin name. And so, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's, you know, Luke is referring to him as the Jewish rabbi that he is. But now, and this is what is really quite, um, I mean, it's, it's quite astonishing, really, that Barnabas goes to get Saul and brings him to the primary Gentile church. Antioch, to teach. But, I mean, that tells us a little bit that God had been preparing Saul for this very ministry. And that was why he is going to be called, as you know, I think you know this, Paul will be called the apostle to the Gentiles. And here, I mean, it's just, you're starting to see the genesis of that emphasis in his life. And Saul was taken off to, for what, three years to learn it's actually it's actually 13 years. Oh, thir- total it's 13. Of 13. Years. Mm-hmm. Okay. 13 years. After mm-hmm. God revealed After his conversion. Jesus yeah. said okay. Yeah. Now, I I shouldn't I should uh, I, I want to back up there. It, it it's 13 years till the first missionary journey. So it's about 11 years here. From when he met Christ until now. This is about AD 45. So, but still, I mean, it's, you know, about a decade or a little more. A decade that Paul has, and that's what the, 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 the Bible's silent on what all Paul was doing up there. He was teaching, it's mentioned, but you know, what else is he doing other than teaching? And I do think, and I, this is not an original thought with me, but that you know, that takes a long time for Paul to deepen all of the theology, deep, deep thinking about the theology of Jesus being the Messiah and Jesus being the inaugurator of the new covenant, and the Holy Spirit being the sign, all of that, and putting that in to a well-thought-through theology. And I say it that way because that's what's reflected in his letters. A well-thought-out theology. And you, no matter how brilliant you are, you don't do that overnight. You see what I'm saying? Because he really, he puts that all together, and he's, he's thinking about the church, he's thinking about, the, the, the nature of Christ, how do we use the right words to talk about Christ? What are the words we use to talk about the new covenant salvation offered in Jesus? And when someone is, you know, and that, that's justification. I mean, it's all of that. It, it, again, it's not original with me. It is in that decade or more that he's in Tarsus, roughly 10, 11 years, that I think he's thinking through all this. And he's putting together this theology of Christianity. When he first came to Christ in, on that road to Damascus, and he, and he asked him, why do you persecute me? After that, wasn't he taken off to just, I don't know how, I mean, was it by himself or how do you understand that? Wasn't there like three years that he was just, kind of by himself or well the the chronology of those years uh is fairly uh, very early years fairly clear because of what he tells us in galatians he made, he made a couple trips to jerusalem he was in the 
Arabian desert, which is not Saudi Arabia, but the desert area, the Nabataeans, which would just be a little bit to the west of the Jordan River. Uh, I'm sorry, east of the Jordan River. Um, but it isn't, you know, Fred, it wouldn't be correct to say that these are three years of silence. We have a pretty good idea of what he's doing. Now, the Arabian thing, we don't. Uh, he doesn't tell us. But uh, the, the more silent years are when he flees Jerusalem and is taken to Tarsus. That's silent years. We do not know what he's doing there. And he mentioned one thing he was th- teaching, but that's all. I mean, we don't know anything else about what he's doing. That's why, and I'll say it for the third time, this is not an original thought with me. He, those years are where Paul is, because he's so brilliant, he's putting together the theology of Christianity. And when, when were those years again? Those, those years that he was doing this? Uh, in, in Tarsus? It's, a, it's about tar- a ten, 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 you know, because remember, he fled from Drew, he fled Tarsus for his life. He was, they were out to get him. He, he fled from Tarsus? No, he fled from, 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 from Jerusalem And then to went to Tarsus. Tarsus right. And he's known as Saul of Tarsus. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, that's his hometown. That's where his family is yeah. from. <laughs> so he went and, back there then. And, and he and, went back there, right. And, and he was there for a number of years. Close to 11 years. 11 years? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Is that another reason why he has more of a um, third person or voice to his letters, more of an organizational type perspective than Peter's uh, conversational. <laughs> That's an interesting observation. Yeah, uh, Probably, yeah. I mean, part of that too, Glenn, I think can reflect Peter, it's not that P- Peter's no dummy, as you know. The right. style of his Greek is quite magnificent, but Peter is not formally trained in a school. Paul right. is. He's from the University of Tarsus, and he's from the rabbinic school of Gamaliel I. So he was. that's how he's trained. He's trained to think as a, in a Greco-Roman way of thinking, and he's trained to think as a rabbi. So there's going to be structure and organization, and he's just so brilliant. Sometimes he'll use, like he does in 1 Corinthians, Aristotelian logic to prove a point. He'll quote from Greek writers, and he's quoting from, I mean, he's just, he's just, he, but I think it's because he has thought through all of this. And that's one of the reasons today um, uh, we need to have people teaching doctrinal truth. <laughs> and I mean, you know, yeah, I, some, some of you have been coming to this class for, for a while now, but I mean, you know that I, I like to weave in doctrinal truth because I think it's so important to think like this uh, because for the most part, um, this is going to sound terrible, but it's a general <clears throat> statement, but we are not encouraging Christians to think very deeply. We really are not. <laughs> We're spoon-feeding them uh, pablum, and that maybe doesn't work anymore. But you know, we're spoon feeding them things when we should be challenging them to really think deeply about their faith. And if that's not happening in the church, where on earth is it going to be happening? You know, and so it's it's just, and that's why I do these Bible studies because if people want to come, they're not going to get Pavel. You're going to get deep things that are a result of my thirty years of study, because I think the church needs that. And so when Paul, and it tells us here, 
Paul taught the church for a year, I'm guaranteeing you that he went through all that he had been thinking about the last decade. And maybe he put notes together. Maybe he stapled them into binders. I made that up. That's not true. But, you know, just uh, whatever it was, so that when these people were done, they really knew doctrinal truth because they're the leaders. And this Antioch church, and you'll see that in Acts 13, this Antioch church is going to say, we're going to start sending people out now. And Paul and Barnabas are going to head into Galatia, a Roman province. There aren't many Jews. There are some. And then, and you know, the second missionary is going to go over into Greece. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing how they're thinking about this. And that goes beyond where I want to be right now. All right, good questions. Verse 27. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, don't stumble too much over that word. That doesn't mean, you know, that they're teaching prophecy. They're just, they're taking the word of God the clarity of the Word of God and applying it, but also helping people to understand things about the future. One of the guys named Agabus, we're not going to find out anything about him, but he stood up and foretold by the Spirit, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is the one who's the source of what he's about to say. There would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Now, Luke is telling us something here that is really, really important. Number one, he's identifying the name of the Roman Caesar at this time. That Roman Caesar is Claudius. He is the Caesar of Rome from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54. He is a good ruler. Now, I don't mean good in the sense he's a Christian. That's not what I mean. He's a good administrator. But during his reign... And this 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 is extra biblical sources galore explain this to us. From about AD forty four to AD forty eight were massive famines all over the Roman Empire, and a very very serious famine in Judea. About forty four forty five into forty six, so Agabus right at the beginning of this is saying a great famine is coming. So the disciples determined that everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, because as I mentioned a moment ago, Judea was particularly hit by a famine. And they did so, sending the elders, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what's this telling us? This group of Gentile believers in Antioch hear about this famine and, and Agabus is saying, this is going to last a long time, which is about two and a half years. That's a long time. So that's scarcity of food. And so, plus, don't forget that the people in the Jerusalem church already have paid for their stand for Christ. Many of them have lost jobs, lost land, whatever. And so the Antioch Christians who are Gentiles say, we're going to take an offering for them. And we're going to ask Paul, Saul, and Barnabas to deliver it. I want you to notice something. At the end of verse 30, it speaks of the elders. First time it's mentioned in the book of Acts. What does that tell us? The Jerusalem church is organized. The Jerusalem church is developing a structure. There are elders who are leading the church. 
We read about the church in Jerusalem in verse 22. Now we're reading about the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So, you know, I, I, th- this is real fascinating and interesting to me. It's maybe not as fascinating and interesting to you. But interesting to me just from an historical perspective. We're now about 10 to 12 years out from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And already the church is just exploding. We talked about the thousands, thousands, thousands of coming to know Christ in Jerusalem. Now they're beginning to organize, which is necessary. Organize with leaders. And you have this amazing, Andy, this amazing provision of a bunch of Gentiles concerned about their starving Jewish brothers, and they take an offering. Why does Luke take the time to tell us this? Look at the difference the gospel is making. Gentiles helping Jews. Albeit, Christian Gentiles helping Christian Jews. It's just, Luke loves to do this. He gives us little short, pithy comments. What does the church look like? He did that several times so far in the book. He'll tell us in like two sentences, and the church is growing, and they're deepening, and that's it. And he moves on to another great event. So he's just telling us here, as he finishes this extraordinary situation and discussion in Antioch, and how they get Saul to come down, and he teaches them for a year. He's becoming a key person. Oh, and by the way, this church also took an offering to care for starving brothers in Jerusalem who are all Jews. And he doesn't comment on it. He doesn't. It's just, wow. Evidence of the grace of God. Evidence of the gospel. Evidence of the nature of the church. Jew and Gentile equal. Gentiles even caring for Jews. Who not too long ago, let's go back 15, 20 years, those Gentiles wouldn't have given a hoot about the people in Jerusalem. But now they're Christians. Now they're believers. And the leveling, spiritual leveling that, leveling that comes with the gospel, you see people the way God sees people. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, it's, it's really astonishing. So don't miss that. It's just, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, this is, this is really, really important. And we can validate this historically because Luke tells us this is in the days of Claudius. And the, the, uh, the, uh, the Roman Empire's chronicles and, and the, the historians, they all talk about the famines during the time of Claudius. They were very serious all over the empire. And the one in Judea was particularly severe. So Luke says, how did that church in Jerusalem make it through that? The brothers in Antioch are caring for them. That's kind of neat. Got it? All right. You got five minutes. Verse 12, or chapter 12. Now we're going to shift kind of back to Jerusalem here. About that time, Herod, the king. Okay, now I wish I had a board here. Um, This is not Herod the Great. This is his grandson. Herod the Great died. Herod the Great's the guy who was king when Jesus was born. You remember the Christmas story? So this is Herod. His full title is Herod Agrippa I. 
Aren't you glad I told you? That'll be on the quiz next week. Don't forget. <laughs> it's Herod Agrippa the first. Okay. Um, he. I'm trying to think if I should go into this in any detail. Let me just mention this if I could. It, it's kind of an interesting historical fact. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his will, and this was this is how Roman Empire worked, his will was opened in place in front of the Caesar in Rome, and the Caesar had to approve of that will. The will was read, and the will of Herod said, I want to divide my empire among my three sons, Herod Antipas, Philip Herod, and Archelaus. And each one got a part of Herod's big territory that the Roman Empire had given him the right to administer. His son Archelaus got Judea. He was a horrible ruler, incompetent. And so in AD 6, the Roman Empire deposed him and made Judea a Roman province, administered by the legions. We're now 41 AD. Um, the son, grandson of Herod the Great, this Herod Agrippa, had studied in Rome. He went to school in Rome. He was very good teenage friend with Claudius. Are you still with me? Yeah. In other words, they, they, they played basketball together. They went to Starbucks together. They did a lot of things together. So, Claudius, I mean, he's one of the good Flavian emperors. He's a good emperor. A very good administrator. He becomes the Caesar after Caligula. So, he's thinking, my buddy Herod Agrippa, Agrippa, you've called, he's headed back to, to, to Judea. I'm going to give him the authority to rule again. So I'm going to remove the Roman military governor. You know one of the most famous Roman military governors of Judea. Who's the most famous one? Everybody knows Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. There were a whole series of those. So by the time Clay, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make Herod, my friend, Herod Agrippa, I'm going to make him king of the Jews. And I'm going to let him administer the territory. It's no longer a Roman province. Now, I, I'm, I'm telling you some history, but I hope you're, you're following that. In other words, Herod Agrippa is now king of the Jews again, just like his grandfather was. This isn't a military province of Rome. This is a province that Herod Agrippa's ruling. So when it tells us Herod the king, this is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, who's ruling Judea. This isn't a Roman military province anymore. And he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, history tells us, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, but history tells us Herod Agrippa wanted to win favor with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, the high priest, the Pharisees. What's the best way in A.D. 41, 42, 43, what's the best way to gain favor with the Jewish leadership? Take out after the church. Get rid of those Christians. Get rid of those Christians. And so he starts arresting them. And he murders James, the brother of John. 
You remember James and John, the sons of thunder, Zebedee's boys? So he killed James. James is one of the, Stephen was the first recorded martyr. James is another one with the sword. That, what, what does that mean? That means he decapitates him. Which is interesting because normally Rome didn't do that. Normally the Jews didn't do that. But he kills him. Verse 3, this pleased the Jews. Now don't read that as an anti-Semitic comment. That the, the Jews, meaning the leadership, the Sanhedrin. And then he does something else. He arrests Peter. Now, if you want to find out what happens to Peter and how important this is, you've got to come back next week. So did that little history lesson give you some context for why this guy, Herod's really an important guy? He was a, he was a childhood friend of Claudius, and Caligula for that matter, too. But anyway, and now he's got a lot of power, but he's got to earn the favor of the Jews if he's going to remain being effective. And that's kind of what's going on here. All right. Great. Father, we're thankful for your uh, favor that you share to us, with us, your grace that's poured out upon us. We are men and women of, uh, are men of, of, of blessing uh, that have ex- uh, experienced the salvation in Christ, the fullness and richness of the Spirit who indwells us. We're all learning, continue to learn and deal with the patterns and habits of our old life and beginning to see the victory and power we have in the indwelling spirit. We're so grateful for your provisions, and thank you for your constant reminder, even as we've been studying Acts, of the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray for these men. I continue to pray for Jim and his ongoing treatments. Give him your grace. Give him your strength. Um, May this completely bring the cancer into remission. We really pray for that. Pray for Glenn's dad. I didn't get an update on that, but... Continue to pray for him. Glad he's back safely here in Old Home. Any other needs there might be here in our group? Thank you for your your uh, your your wonderful blessing and grace in each one of our lives. If we had time, we could all testify to that grace. Thank you that Joel has arranged for us to be able to have our classes here. And even today, when that major event occurred over the United Way, there was another place he could find where we could continue to meet. So thank you and bless him for his service and ministry to all of us. So as we go our separate ways now, dismiss us with your blessing. We want to represent you well, Lord, and help us to do that to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.